0: Welcome to Fast Frontiers. I am your host, Tim Schigel, Managing Partner of Refinery Ventures. In today's episode, we're bringing you my conversation with Nikki Shavak, co-founder and partner of Blackbird Ventures in Melbourne, Australia. In today's episode, we're going to talk about the Australian tech ecosystem, which was virtually non-existent in 2010 when Nikki and his co-founder, Rick Baker, started raising Blackbird fund number one. And now today they have over $1.3 billion under management across four funds. Blackbird's investing thesis is that they value the relationship with the company first and often start by investing early before product and revenue and follow the company through every round of venture financing. The biggest theme, or so what, I hope you take away from this conversation is this. Instead of seeing their time zone as a limitation, they turned it into a strength. This is a great concept that other regions can learn from. Nikki Shavak is the co founder and partner of Blackbird Ventures. After moving back to Sydney in 2010, Nikki founded StartMate, one of Australia's preeminent incubators. Before investing, he also started two software companies and lived in New York City. Blackbird is a leading venture firm in Australia and New Zealand and has invested in companies like graphic design platform Canva and autonomous vehicle company Zooks. Please enjoy my conversation with Nikki Shavak. Welcome, Nikki.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: So glad that you're providing your leadership at Blackbird for Australia. It's really impressive what's happened since 2012 when you started it. But uh, yeah, let's let's talk a little bit more about your background and how your entrepreneur entrepreneurial journey kind of transpired and led you to Blackbird.
1: Yeah, I was doing university in the late 90s and reading, listeners remember, publications like the uh, Red Herring or Business 2.0 and really, I think, through that uh, sort of caught the bug for technology entrepreneurship and, and technology investing. I uh, did a startup while at university. The most famous thing about the startup was that it was with Mike Kenner brooks who's the co-founder of Atlassian. Um He and I were doing the same university degree and we're actually roommates. It was the, I think, the real education that I got. Uh, we raised a tiny amount of money. We built the company um over a year or a year and a half. Uh, it was called the bookmark box. It allowed people to manage and share their bookmarks online. If you remember back then, people had different computers at home and work and school and so on really, I think, provided the entree to, to my career and to say that, you know, this is what I want to do with my life. Then I, uh, after the bookmark box was sold to a company in New York, I moved over to New York. Then sort of the next phase of my career was with the research and advisory company called Jupiter and uh, sort of spent five years in New York and also um, uh, had done a startup in, in New York moved back to Australia around sort of the end of uh, 2009, get married, have kids. And really what struck me when we're moving back was um, all of the people that I had gotten to know in New York and San Francisco, and, and sort of uh, the founders who were building companies over there. And what struck me when I moved back to Australia, that, that the people I was meeting here were just as talented just as um, qualified or unqualified um, to, to do companies. And that sort of led me to found um, originally Startmate, which is an accelerator and, and sort of built with the same principles as, as, as Blackbird, which is sort of a founder community at the heart of it, of founders helping other founders. And this focus on a particular type of company that can be built from Australia, but built um, with customers all around the world from day one. So the I think entrepreneurship outside of the U.S. is, is roughly divided into Two categories. One is which I think was prevalent earlier on in in sort of the history was take a good idea and make it work in Australia. You know, uh, Groupon works in America, make it work in Australia. Um, Uber works in America, make it work in Australia. And so that sort of translation um, entrepreneurship community. You know, they they built valuable companies. People made money investing in them. But um, what was really interesting to me was not that set of entrepreneurship, but the sort of emerging group of people that were trying to build companies that were the best in the world, not the best in Australia, and had been very close to the journey of them and, and observing that from, from afar. And then, you know, there were 20 or 30 other Australian companies, Campaign Monitor, Half um, Halfbrick Studios, um, Wise Tech, uh, sort of the list goes on of these um, great companies that were built from Australia that had customers all around the world. And and really was that group of people that we've built Blackbird and and, and Startmate for and, and, you know, with sort of some amount of capital. Um, But as I said, the sort of essential essential ingredient of community where if you look at the magic of Silicon Valley, it really is when someone builds a technology company, um, they go on to invest and help the next generation. So if, you know, in this uh, sort of state of play back in, in 2010, in Australia where you know there was no capital but there was also no community there was no um those who had succeeded in, in building technology companies um had largely not uh, sort of uh re-engaged or recycled their time and money in the next generation and and i think the biggest thing that we did was um we assembled some capital but we assembled that community of uh, technology founders who had a a passion to help the next generation and you know that that has you know, really being the the central ingredient to to the progress we've made over the last decade.
0: Well, congrats on on that. I mean, your everything about your message is about being ambitious and leading the world, which I think is is terrific and is also unique because I think too many people want to just, as you mentioned, just kind of reproduce something else. And one of the things that makes Silicon Valley unique is that people go there if they're not already there with the mindset that they're there to change the world, right? And it's very hard to replicate that in other places around the world. And you're, you seem to be doing that, or at least you're, you're resonating with entrepreneurs who want to do that. And I wonder how much of that you found already existed and you're just kind of giving a voice to it or, or how much of it is, is sort of helping to educate and inspire those
1: entrepreneurs? So I think of ambition as a honeypot, and I should say that I also think that ambitious companies are more likely to succeed than unambitious companies. And and this whole idea of a honeypot of if you have a grand mission, the best people want to join you to do their best work. Um, The best investors would like to invest in you at the best valuations. You know, the the best partners will say yes quickly and, you know, not screw around um, uh, and give you the best terms. And so there's something sort of self-fulfilling, or something that is like a chemical reaction in 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 ambition, and you know I think people building a company is so hard. Um, it, it is you know whether you build an ambitious company or an unambitious company, it is you know all low probability that you'll succeed. But I think so if you're going to do something, do something worthwhile, and and if you do something worthwhile. Actually, I think you have a slightly higher chance of success than if you're unambitious. so, how you build an ecosystem, I think, is you have these lighthouse companies that then go on to inspire the next generation, and and you know the employees that grew up in those um, lighthouse companies go on to be the early employees or the founders of of those next generation companies, the angel investors, um, or the sort of uh, group of people that help the next generation, as I, as I mentioned. And so sort of how you build an ecosystem, uh, a series of lighthouse companies hopefully lead to um, a whole lot more in the next generation. Usually it's like a seven-year kind of cycle. And then those next generation companies would hopefully lead to exponentially more companies in the third generation and, and so on and so forth. And all of a sudden you have an ecosystem. So I think if you have a 20-year view, um, it, it's a fairly straightforward exercise.
0: There are a number of topics I want to follow up on, on that. But the first, so our listeners understand, can you go ahead and walk us through a, just the history and the, the the growth of Blackbird since 2012, and and also name some of your higher profile companies that people might be aware of?
1: Yes, we have raised uh, four funds at Blackbird. The the first was a $29 million fund, and this is Australian dollars, um, which uh, periodically are sort of one-to-one with the US dollar, but actually um, at the moment are, are sort of 70 cents in the uh, the US dollar, so slightly less for listeners in, in America. Um, So that first fund was a $29 million vehicle. We had 522 meetings to get 97 people to say yes over a two year period. We sort of opened the doors after one year with our first close and kept fundraising for another year after that for the first fund. So it was an extremely difficult fundraise. And really back then it was to do with people didn't believe in Australian startups. there had been a prior generation of Australian venture capital firms that hadn't really delivered the returns that investors had expected. And so there was no capital left in the ecosystem. As I said, there were, there were successful companies. This was the paradox. There were all of these already successful companies um, in Australia, but no one really paying attention to them. And so, you know, it was controversial or contrarian. Um, to raise an Australian venture capital uh, fund. I think the sort of accepted wisdom was the best Australian VC was Axel. Axel, a Silicon Valley firm, um, had invested in, I think, sort of five or six uh, of the best Australian um, technology companies in that uh, era, including Atlassian. Accepted wisdom was that there wasn't any room for a a local firm. With the 97 people who said yes, um, most of them were the technology founders who were putting in their own sort of personal capital. So again, that essential ingredient of Blackbird and really the heart of Blackbird is this founder community, you know, firstly through the LPs of that first fund and, um, you know, now through the portfolio of companies we've been fortunate enough to, to invest in. So we, so we, uh, got started with the $29 million fund. Second fund was 192, third fund, 260. And then the most recent fund is uh, $600 million. So I can describe how that has sort of changed, uh, over time. Rewinding back to the to the first fund, the you know the the flip side of it being a really hard fundraise is that once we had raised the fund, you know we were the cup of water in the desert. We were the person who was interested in these kinds of software companies that were building themselves from Australia but had customers all around the world. And so we were fortunate enough to be uh, invest in the the first and you know now every round of companies like Canva and Culture App and Safety Culture and Zooks and there's a whole bunch of um, you know wonderful companies in in that first fund. Big ambition change for Blackbird came at in that second fund. Um, so we raised our second fund in, in 2015. The the sort of rise in ambition was uh, for ourselves was why should we invest in the first round and not any other rounds in a in company? Why is sort of the venture capital industry structured around um, the rounds of financing rather than structured around the company. So if I the unit of the venture capital industry is the, the financing round. You raise a seed fund to invest in seed rounds, you raise a Growth fund to invest in growth rounds and sort of it's segmented along these kind of financings. But I think you know anyone who has invested in companies realizes that the the unit is not the financing round; it's the relationship with the company. And um, uh, people say you know venture capital is a power law business, which means that you know the most valuable company will be worth um, more than every other company combined in that portfolio or that um, you know year of uh, of of vintage of venture capital. And so Uh, With our second, third, and fourth funds, we also have this larger pool of uh, follow-on fund capital that invests in the existing portfolio, so so it's a a pool of capital that is a a window into our later stage deal flow. And what that has meant is we invest right at the beginning, before product and before revenue, um, but we can invest all through a company's um, uh, life and success, and particularly for those generational companies, to be able to invest hundreds of millions of dollars or even billions of dollars per company. The sort of case study uh, example there is Canva, which is a graphic design platform. We first invested $250,000 um, in Canva's seed round uh, as it was getting started and before product, but we've invested $200 million um, just into Canva. So the, the the sort of strategy is slightly different to the way that the venture capital ecosystem is, is structured in the US, but it, it really sort of recognizes that this power law distribution, why, why don't people... Adjust their behavior. Why do people invest before they know a company is successful, and then invest nothing after they know a company is successful? That that sort of you know logic has has never made sense to 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 me. And so we have sort of adjusted our um, investing in recognition that um, you know the industry is around relationships, not you know rounds of financing. And you know there is no better. A place to start the relationship than right at the beginning. If, you know the entry point and is 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 this is the first investment in the seed round. But then if you go and build a great relationship, that is ultimately um, the best competitive advantage that will outcompete. If you want to invest um, in those later rounds of the companies, outcompete all of the iconic names of Silicon Valley and so on. And so you know, great relationships will outcompete great brands and you know that's how we've been able to build our our business in 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 Blackbird.
0: So the question I'm dying to ask back to community is is sort of the chicken and egg issue, right? I, I'm I'm a big believer in success begets success. And it sounds like that could be true in this case and that the there there was a community of founders, but they weren't really attached or connected or catalyzed until you recognized and brought them together. And you know, Brad Feld talks a lot about this as well, you know, that it has to be organic from the entrepreneurs. So yeah. What, what's your response to that that chicken and egg question about an ecosystem?
1: Yeah. And look, first of all, Brad Feld book startup communities was the inspiration for um, so much of what we've done at Startmate and, and, and Blackbird. And um, uh, he has done so much to, I think uh, advance the uh, communities outside of Silicon Valley, all around the, all the world. As I mentioned, there wasn't so much a chicken and egg because particularly with software companies that you can start and bootstrap and make a lot of progress without capital, you already had the successful uh, technology founders. And so, you know, with an ecosystem, with no money and no community, uh, you still get successful companies. I think that's what's important to recognize is that, Capital and community can amplify and accelerate something, but the sort of um, inception moment, I think you do need the the, the successful technology um, companies. As I said, luckily with software and, and these uh, sort of capital efficient companies, even without capital, even without community, you still get great success. If you look at Atlassian, hasn't raised a, a dollar of primary capital um, all throughout its life. It's a $50 billion company listed on the, the NASDAQ. And so as we started in, in, in 2010, the, the, the paradox was there were successful companies, but no successful investors or no community. And so um, uh, I think that provided the opportunity for us to, to, to begin Blackbird there.
0: So what, uh, what, what's unique to Australia that you think might provide entrepreneurs with a competitive advantage?
1: I think from our journey uh, and success so far, the horrible time zone um, was actually a great constraint. Um, so Australia probably has the worst time zone overlap with Europe and it has um, the worst time zone overlap with the East Coast of the U.S. It has some overlap with the West Coast. But having a bad time zone, I think, created an interesting constraint where Australia and New Zealand have produced these great software companies with extremely efficient um, customer acquisition or sales and marketing. Um, uh, And and really the insight was sell to the worker of a company rather than sell to the CIO or important decision maker of a company. So rather Mm -hmm. than steak dinners and golf games and, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars, um, you know, uh, big kind of negotiations, it was give the product away for free for 30 days. Um, The person who's using it, the Software developer, the project manager, the HR manager, the marketing manager, whoever that might be, let them use the product. Let the the product be the salesperson. Let them put their credit card down. Let them use it amongst their team, um, and sort of thousands of these kind of credit card decisions um, happening across the company um, add up to the same end result of you know hundreds of thousands of dollars of ACV at this big company. But I think you know particularly atlassian pioneered this sales and marketing model that. Dropbox and Slack and, and you know, a whole host of awesome software companies have furthered. But I think that sort of constraint of being in a really bad time zone led to this sort of how can we, how can we adapt and um, you know selling via the worker, not via the important decision maker um, was one of the you know, biggest breakthroughs in how to build a software company.
0: I love that. That's, that's, I hadn't heard that. And that's a great example of constraint-based engineering. They figured out a way because they had to. That's awesome. It also seems like with, you know, so much happening with remote work, and there's no more geographical barriers with mobile and cloud. You know, from my experience so far with what the short experience in Australia is, it's also very international. So it seems like you are well positioned that people are from all all points around the globe. And there's more uh, understanding of the international marketplace than maybe any other part of the world.
1: Yeah, look, Australia is a, a cultural melting pot. It's very culturally similar to the US as well. Australia and US are you know, great friends and um, it's very easy for Australians to work in in the US. Um, there's a separate visa for Australians to work in the US. I think sort of also the small population forces people to build out a horizontal skill set rather than a deep specialization, which um, uh, is friendly to, um, to startups. You know, I would say that the bigger technology companies recruit straight out of the Australian university. So the, you know, if you looked at the top 10 computer science students at various universities in Australia, like UNSW or the university of Melbourne or wherever it might be, Tesla and Facebook and Google and so on, are recruiting them to work in their U S offices. And then now I think technology companies, Google probably is the biggest example in Australia where um, Google maps was invented and built in Australia. uh, But now, because of that, and large parts of Google Chrome and various uh, Android um, products around auto and, and so on are built in Australia. And Google has an engineering office of thousands of people um, here. Uh, and so I think sort of the the, the engineering or the product talent um, is is a very good one and has always been well recognised. It you know was directly sort of imported, um, but now I think you know those people return to Australia when um, they want to have kids and you know not separate the kids from the grandparents um, for various other lifestyle reasons. And so they bring back their knowledge of um, building technology companies from Silicon Valley back to Australia. Startups who get started here and build product and engineering teams you know, are able to recruit from this great flow of people. Um, and so I think particularly around um, building product teams uh, locally, there's a huge competitive advantage. So not only are you getting really talented people, um, it's likely to be at a comparatively cheaper Rate. I mean, everything's cheaper than the Bay Area, and those people will actually stick around. You know, the, the sort of re- employee retention of um, each office. And if you look at the the portfolio of companies, like it's extremely high churn in in the Bay Area, extremely low churn in Sydney and Melbourne and Brisbane and 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 wherever. And so you can build a great team of the most talented people that are comparatively. Um, Cheaper that stick around longer, and then additionally, there's a, a government um, uh, program that allows uh, people to claim back uh, sort of through an R and D tax refund. Um, so if you're building a product team and doing R and D in Australia, you actually get like a forty two cents of a dollar um, uh, uh, refund if you're unprofitable and have less than twenty million dollars a year. And everything is very similar to the Canadian regime, and so all of these ingredients make it the best place for companies to build um, a product team as I said, you know, global customers, inevitably, um, the, the companies will build a customer facing office in, in America. Originally when we started, everyone was go goes to the Bay area. I would say no one goes to the Bay area for that office anymore. It's, it's much more likely, um, cities like Denver or Austin or Portland or Salt Lake city, or, um, uh, those sorts of places where again, you have a chance of hiring good people that will stick around for, somewhat less cost than the, than the Bay area. So I think the, the sort of unfair advantage is building great product teams in Australia and even I think, um, global technology companies like Google and Zendesk and, um, you know, a whole bunch of others are now building engineering teams in, in Australia and you know, other places like London and, and so on. So, um, I think sort of the world is moving to recognize that, you know, great people are everywhere in the world, not just, um, San Francisco.
0: So when you look back at when you were starting Blackbird with with Rick Baker and if you were to look at that business plan today, you know, compare and contrast, what's, what's the same, what's been, what's been true to your vision and what's changed or surprised you?
1: I think we hoped there would be this kind of um, product founder who wanted to build a global software company from Australia. Uh, build it in such a way that, uh, as I said, sort of sold to the worker rather than sold to the um, uh, senior kind of IT decision maker. Wow, did that happen? Um, that, there was a, a huge purple patch, I think, around the 2012, 2013 kind of vintage um, where um, it was magically right. So I think we hoped it would be there. It was there in spades. And then I think also the degree of success of those company. Companies has been ten times uh, or even more what we you know dreamed of. So I think um, that that sort of thesis of software company, uh, global software company being built from Australia was a hundred percent on the money. I think the sort of um, ambition for us to invest in the seed round um, and that was it. Um, the ambition, so I, uh, for for how big those companies could become, I think we were wildly, often you know, wildly unambitious in in um, in hindsight, I think um, uh, as we've sort of built uh, Blackbird itself, um, at the end, there was no ambition to build any kind of team. I think the other strange thing about the venture capital industry is they're all structured like suburban accounting firms, where there's a few people who do the work and there's a few support staff, and that, that's it. And you know they tend to, you know, not survive the test of time because you know the old people hang on too long, young people who are doing the uh, having the success don't get recognised, they leave and form their own firms and, you know, rinse and repeat. And so I think um, uh, we ha- we thought nothing about building Blackbird itself, which um, I would say is one of our chief focus areas um, in, in recent times is building the management company with the same ambition as the companies that we invest in and, and, and um, building it with a product mindset rather than a service mindset usually. But what is interesting is being able to build a team around a series of products or a series of programs that make, you know, ecosystem level impact and you know the the test for that is you know thousands of people a year or tens of thousands of people a year that you've deeply um, affected whether that is um giving them money or um, helping them get a job or some other piece of sort of financial infrastructure or infrastructure that helps them have a higher chance of, of success and so we thought nothing about building blackbird itself and now you know i would say uh we think um a lot about that in the initial stages the investing thesis was all about software companies but if you look at the venture capital the history of venture capital um it takes this weird zigzag path from optical telecom equipment to e-commerce to um sas to social networks to um, these sort of next waves of technology did not look like um the the last waves and so if you become an expert you actually get trapped and die in the, in the sort of areas that you are an expert in. Um, and if you don't open your mind to new frontiers and to new types of ideas, you know, you, you, you kind of die. And so I think the the biggest moment for Blackbird was in 2014, where we met a guy called Tim Kenley Clay, who's the founder, uh, co-founder of Zooks, which is a robo taxi company, um, reinventing the uh, idea of a vehicle from the ground up. No steering wheel feels like a living room on wheels and operating a, a consumer service. The company was acquired by Amazon. And um, even though it looks like it's making a car, most of the people at Zoox are software engineers. So it's built with this. The The, the magic of the company is, is software. Um, however, it appears in a very different form factor. And um, investing in a company like that, I think sort of opened up a new vein of investing uh, for Blackbird. So we, certainly the, the the sort of core layer is is software companies, but we've added to that over time uh, in autonomous vehicles or space or industrial robotics or all of these different sort of areas of um, interest where um, the next great company may may appear.
0: Uh, such a good point in terms of being being open to you know kind of what's coming in the future. Uh, but like in a situation as Zooks or any of your companies that. When, when, you, when you deem it to be an ambitious, large vision, how do you, how does it progress? Like, not all of them do, obviously, right? So how do you work with the entrepreneurs to figure out, okay, you know, was, was that vision valid? Was it too early? You know, how do you navigate that with the entrepreneurs?
1: You know, that is the joy of the business. Um, and that is where the rubber hits the, uh, hits the road. And so I think there are sort of three elements. There are the, you know, the vision, which you to know, think of the top, Right hand corner of the the journey um, uh, there are the set of achievements in the next twelve to eighteen months. You raise a round of capital. here's what you hope to achieve, and um, uh, that's you know the bottom left hand side of the graph. I think the great founders um and the great companies have a very good answer for the um sort of middle stage, so after twelve or eighteen months but before the full realization of the vision in you know nine or ten years. The sequence of events that happen um, in between that and we call we call it we should ask ourselves the question of are we in love with the product roadmap and someone who's thought very deeply about a problem and very deeply about a market it's 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 abundantly clear when you speak to them even at the seed round how much they've thought about it every question reveals a huge amount of depth of thought around um, uh, each different area leads to more and more questions and more and more interesting answers and and sort of this kind of, um, deeply thought through, um, sequence, sequence of events is, is really clear when you meet, um, a Zooks or you meet a Canva and opposite to that is, uh, uh, when, um, someone has a big idea that sounds ambitious, but you know, you ask a few questions and the answers are terribly unsatisfying or is not, you know, uh, is abundantly clear. They haven't thought about, um, how exactly they're going to get to the, you know, to the promised land. Um, so, uh, I think, people's quality of thought around the idea. People always say the idea doesn't matter, but actually I think if I look back into the really successful companies we've invested in, they've always had that clarity of thought and that depth of thinking um, around um, how they will achieve that vision. That's great perspective.
0: So what role do you play in terms of helping the entrepreneur put together their, their the rest of the investor group?
1: The honeypot helps the most, um, how, you know, even how do we build relationships with other co-investors. If you have invested in successful companies, it's like a magnet to other great investors and um, therefore building relationships with those other investors. And so you do accumulate, I think, a valuable network of um folks over time. But honestly, if a company is awesome, it is a honeypot for investors. And, um, you know, they're contacting you to get an introduction um, uh, rather than the other way around. And um, I think, you know, certainly so maybe describing it sort of across the rounds of capital that a company raises usually in australia they'll raise like a 1 or 2 million dollar seed round they'll make a bunch of progress then they might raise a 2 to 5 million dollar what we call aussie a round um and then they make a bunch more progress and then they might raise a 10 to 15 million dollar us series a round and that's about 7 to 10 million us usd from that kind of us series a round onwards i would say the market gets incredibly efficient very, very quickly. Um, the, the sort of first million or $2, um, it's probably a local market and there's only local investors and individuals and a small amount of funds that are uh, investing in that kind of round. Um, but as soon as a company begins to show promise, starting from the US Series A round and definitely by the US, uh, by the Series C round, it is incredible. Like, you know, even though we're providing all of these intros, it, it's, it's, it's pretty easy when people are you know, beating down our door rather than us trying to um, beat them up to be interested in in the company.
0: So that that aligns with some of my observations as well. In the being located in the Midwest in the U.S. here, capital follows growth. If you have the metrics and you have the yep. growth, capital is really not a problem. So when people start asking, you know, complaining that capital is an issue, there's a shortage of capital. You have to say, well, where's the growth, right?
1: Yeah. And I think even um, Naval put it so succinctly in that capital is built from the uh, later stages backwards. Um, so in an ecosystem, you might get um, a bunch of bootstrap companies. And then, um, in Australia's case, the, the sort of round was Atlassian raised a 60 million, $60 million round from Accel. Uh, that was risky back in the day. Um, even though Atlassian was a profitable company growing healthily at, a, at scale, um, And once someone like Accel has a great experience with that round, um, uh, both they and other firms notice their success and then they become comfortable investing in the $30 million, you know, uh, series B or C round. And then they have a bunch of success and then they become comfortable investing in the, you know, $10 million series A round and they have a bunch of success. And then they will become comfortable investing in the $3 million, you know, whatever round. And so I think sort of start the starting point was the, 60 million dollar round that Atlassian raised from Excel and then we're now up to the stage where um, people are super comfortable investing in the seven to ten million dollar Series A round and um, if a firm like Felicis or Cosanoa or Index or Axel or Sequoia has invested in one company in Australia they're much more likely to invest in a second company and then um, uh, you know other folks and 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 so on so um, I think sort of capital is built from the later stages backwards.
0: So final final question, speaking of your values, the one that stood out to me that I love that you don't see on on a venture capital website in particular is, we will make our kids proud. How did that come about? That's awesome.
1: Yeah, I think um, there is so much to business that can trade off depending on if you put something in the context of short-term and long-term. If you just look at it from a short-term point of view, it can lead you to make different decisions to if you put it in the long-term point of view. And so I think when you look at something over the long term, and I think you know the ultimate expression of that is you know you're old and the rocking chair on the balcony or the you know patio of of the house, and you're talking to your kids um, about you know what has transpired. I think that's the ultimate sort of test of behavior and decisions and so on and so forth. And I think again, you're here to do something meaningful and impactful. You're not here to you know win one game or one transaction or one Piece of the puzzle. You're there to, you know, build something that stands the test of time, and I think that's the ultimate test. Is you know, will you make your kids proud with those decisions that you're making?
0: That is so great. I'm I'm glad you guys came up with that, and it it's uh, energized and inspired me just seeing you do that. So, congrats.
1: It's 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 in recognition of the entrepreneur being the customer and the service being infused with hospitality, and you know, again, the the measure of success being the great relationship. that, again, will bring about great results. But again, if you make it the great relationship, then good things will happen.
0: Terrific. Thank you very much for sharing your time, Nikki.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Thanks for listening to Fast Frontiers. If you like our show and want to know more, please check out our website, fastfrontiers.com. If you enjoyed listening to this episode, please share it with others and give us a rating and review on your favorite podcast platform. Join us next week when we bring you my conversation with Steve Santamaria, CEO of Folio Photonics.